Ambulance General Broadcast and vehicles available to book on or come clear for an outstanding Category 1 emergency. Hello and welcome to General Broadcast. My name is Josh, I'm a trainee specialist paramedic in critical care. My name's Alex, I'm a registered paramedic and practice educator. And this is the second part of a two-part episode looking at injury mechanics and the injury experience, interviewing Adam Barrow, the head of collision research for TRL, the Transport Research Laboratory. Yeah, so in this uh, this part, this uh, this week, we have uh, got some listeners' questions that we have put to our sort of general audience on one of our Facebook groups, which uh, if you want to check it out, it's called Paramedicate. We've fairly active on there so if you've ever got any questions for us you can always uh, catch us on there but we've had some questions uh, specifically about injury mechanics and uh, vehicle collisions which uh, Josh you've managed to put to to Adam and he's got some really good answers for us so uh, shall we just uh, get straight on into it yeah let's do it so I've just we've got a couple of questions that some of our, our listeners and, and members on uh, on our online Facebook forum have have submitted when they knew uh, when people knew I was I was going to be talking to an expert in this field. The reason I've selected these questions is they're they're definitely questions that I've been asked either I've asked myself or my students have asked or they're they're questions that that come up time and time again. So the first one that I'm I'm going to ask uh, is around this nature of closing speed, which is a topic that most people will probably have heard of and is something that I think the majority of the ambulance service and, and pre-hospitalists are starting to appreciate is not necessarily a useful term to be using. But I, I, I figured I would I would ask someone who with a much better understanding of, of physics and this sort of thing than, than myself who might be able to explain it in, in, in simple terms as you've been doing fantastically this evening. So quite often what, what people will, will say is that there's been two cars that have collided at 50 miles an hour each. Therefore, it is a closing speed of 100 miles an hour. And that is akin to this patient hitting a wall at 100 miles per hour. Uh, is that useful and is that correct to be talking about yeah it's a great question so in in terms of what you said specifically no that is not correct so i can i can yeah i I can have a go at explaining this so so closing speed is totally understandable why closing speed is used so closing speed being the sum of the two speeds of you know two opposing bodies although they don't actually have to be opposing um, but it's the sum so you know two vehicles traveling at 50 miles per hour, 50 plus 50, 100 miles per hour. So sometimes closing speed can be quite a useful thing to use, but I'll I'll give a couple of examples where closing speed kind of falls down. And probably the way to think about closing speed is that it is a collision specific term that describes the severity of the collision as a whole. But you guys aren't handing over a collision you're handing over a particular person sat in probably sat in one of those vehicles and so closing speed doesn't do a particularly good job always of describing what a particular vehicle has experienced in that in that collision so and and it can probably do a quick thought experiment as a as a kind of demonstration so if you if you imagine two identical vehicles you know hatchbacks whatever mini something like that both doing 50 miles an hour as you described head-on Each vehicle is doing 50 miles per hour at the point of impact. So the result of that collision is that because they're both exactly the same mass and they're going in at exactly the same speed, 
at the end of that collision, those two vehicles will be at the point of collision. They won't move off afterwards because they have the same momentum. And this is where Newton's third law of, of motion comes in, which is every force has an equal and opposite reaction force. So the force of your vehicle one, your first mini, the force it is applying to the, to the second mini is exactly the same as the force that the second mini is applying to that. So you end up with the two vehicles sat side by side or nose to nose, and they would, in theory, end up exactly where they had the impact. Now, if you consider, take exactly the same collision, but change one of those vehicles for something really, really big and heavy that doesn't move, something like a fully laden, you know, 44-ton HGV, and you have exactly the same closing speed. So, sorry, you have exactly the same closing speed for vehicle one, but the HGV is stationary. So vehicle one, 50 miles an hour, bang into the front of that HGV for the purpose of this, the HGV, and in reality, the HGV probably wouldn't move at all. So now the closing speed is 50 plus zero because our HGV is, 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 isn't moving. But in terms of the injury experience and the forces and the overall energy experienced by the people in that first mini, it's exactly the same as the first situation where you had double the closing speed. Because at, at the end of that collision, again, that mini would stay exactly where it was at the point of impact because that HGV hasn't moved. And because it hasn't moved, the force that the HGV is applying on the mini is exactly the same as the mini applying the force on the HGV. So we end up with the two, both of those collisions, all of the vehicles stay at the same point of impact. Now, if you consider a third situation where we still have the mini versus the HGV, but now the mini is going in at 100 miles an hour, now we have the same closing speed as the first situation, but the severity of that collision is twice what it was in the first uh, situation when we had a mini versus mini. So first situation had a closing speed of 100, second was 50. This third situation is also 100. But again, because that vehicle isn't moving, the HGV isn't moving, that mini will end up in the same place again at the point of impact, but it's had twice the speed. So in that sense, closing speed isn't, isn't, is a collision-specific term, but it doesn't do a great job of describing necessarily what those people have experienced. So I would implore you to try and think about perhaps what the change in velocity is for a specific vehicle. So that's the term that we use. That's what we analyze. That's what we calculate is the delta V that a vehicle has experienced, which can then be very different. So in situation one, the delta V for both vehicles is 50 miles per hour, go from 50 to zero. In situation two, the mini again is a delta V of 50 miles an hour. The delta V for the HGV is zero because it hasn't moved. And in the third situation, the delta V for the mini was 100 miles an hour and the delta V for the HGV was zero. So hopefully that's a, kind of given a, a bit of a, an example to try and illustrate it. Absolutely. Far more uh, eloquently than, than I've managed uh, in the past. But uh, I, I think that's, that's done a fantastic job of it. Explaining it, and uh, I really like the term that you've been using throughout this, which is injury experience, because there's a patient at the central of all of this, and, yeah, and, and you know th this is what we're we're all here for is for that person in the vehicle, and and I think thinking about injury experience is uh, is is a really useful point and a really useful term. So the next question was, um, what influences airbag deployment and is it always indicative of high speed? So if we see the airbags are deployed, should we infer that this is, is potentially a high speed mechanism? Yeah, another great question. Um, 
So again, this one, I probably don't have such a, a kind of simple answer for this. So it's probably worth starting by acknowledging that the things that that controls the whole restraint system, so not only whether or not an airbag deploys, but also how the seat belt operates, is a thing called an airbag control module. And airbag control modules are incredibly sophisticated things. So it is not just as simple as there's a switch somewhere on the vehicle that if you hit it, the airbag deploys. It's far, far from that. So if you're familiar with the term black box from you know air, air crash investigation, um, you know, flight data recorders and things, vehicles, cars also have black boxes and it's usually the airbag crash module, uh, sorry, airbag control module, or if not, then it's at least taking a huge amount of data from the airbag control module. So the airbag control modules are in a kind of dormant state most of the time. So they're just monitoring the input input signals from multiple sensors around the vehicle, accelerometers and, and, and the like all over the vehicle. So in the very early stages of a collision, when one or multiples of those vehicle of those sensors pick up a spike and they say, actually, we're, we're having a deceleration here, bearing in mind that in the early stages of a collision, a vehicle can be experiencing different accelerations at different parts of the car. So as the front of a car starts to crash back, for example, the rear of the car hasn't started decelerating yet. So in those early stages, it's sampling all of this in, input variables, input um, values from all these sensors and it will hit a certain threshold and it will activate the airbag module at which point it wakes up and it starts sampling all of these sensors in incredibly high frequency and it starts monitoring all of the information and the the way to think about it is there are there are thresholds so you know certain values for each of these accelerometers that if they exceed it will decide to fire the restraint systems but there's also activation corridors so it's not just hitting a peak you know, acceleration, it's also tracking that acceleration over time and also taking into account the different accelerations you might experience in different parts of the vehicles and how those things track over time will determine, first of all, whether or not the airbag module decides to fire and also how it decides to fire. So modern cars won't just, it's not just a grenade that goes off. They can inflate in different ways and also then how they activate with things like the pretensioners on seatbelts, which are essentially little hand grenades or um, you know, explosive plungers that will pull, they'll tighten up the seatbelt incredibly tight so it pulls the occupant into the best position possible. When it decides to do that, how it does, if it decides to synchronize them or do one first, then the other, or if it decides actually I'm having a really severe collision, fire everything. The airbag control module is doing all of that in the, the very early stages of the collision, so fractions of a second. So to answer your question, there is definitely a, a kind of a minimum threshold where you would expect airbags to kind of work. And if they're not deployed, it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, it, it would indicate that it's probably a low, low severity collision. However, there are times when you can have a kind of an injurious collision and the airbags have decided not to fire. You know, there can be strange circumstances like the power is disrupted. So if you load the battery and things like that, then sometimes the airbag module will, will if it loses power, will, will decide not to do anything or won't be able to do anything. But generally, airbag deployment, looking at a vehicle and seeing airbags, it doesn't necessarily indicate a high mechanism of injury or, or high speed because bearing in mind, we want the airbags to deploy. So if the airbags have deployed, hopefully the vehicle has operated as it's designed to and slowed that occupant down over the longest period of time possible. So it's not in itself an indicator. It's more about has it deployed 
kind of yes or no? And then how has the occupant engaged it, given the context of what kind of crash that the, the vehicle is having? And and while we while we're talking about airbags, another question that that came up is uh, is this this idea around risks to rescuers from dual stage airbags. Now there's there's a lot of different opinions out out there uh and there's there's one talk in particular that i'll try and link to from a a fire service uh sort of scene commander who um in his experience hasn't ever seen and can't find any record of airbags going off and injuring injuring rescuers but it's it's something that again we're all taught and the fire service are very aware of would uh, would you be able to explain what dual stage airbags are and what the difference is and then if you have any experience or, or understanding of uh, whether or not they pose a risk to to rescuers sure um so dual stage so it's, it's worth noting that there's many different airbag manufacturers most uh, vehicle manufacturers won't make their own airbags. So there's there's lots of different terms for the different kinds of technologies they use, and they all have their own kind of patented devices and patented ways of doing things. So I think dual stage is probably referring to, you, it can be called dual stage or multi-stage airbags where there's potentially more than one uh, explosive charge. So airbags work by detonating an explosive charge and using the expanding gases from that to rapidly inflate the the bladder, the airbag itself. So as I mentioned before, the, the, the ACM, the airbag control module, has a number of different options and it may choose to just do the first stage deployment if it's a you know, particularly if it's a particular um, type of collision that it says I don't need to to fire the airbag really rapidly. So the point being that you may have a deployed airbag that still has an active explosive charge that hasn't been activated. So, um, so yes, in, in terms of risk to rescuers, I suppose, in essence, you should think of it as that there is an, an explosive charge somewhere in the, the airbag, you know, in, in the airbag system. In terms of actual risks to, to, you know, this, this includes ourselves as, as um, investigators. We often go and, and poke around the vehicles a day or two afterwards as well to get and pull things apart to get a really detailed understanding of what's going on. It's interesting because it's a it's certainly a concern that I know has been raised for a very very long time. Uh, so some of our my senior colleagues recall when airbags first started coming in. And they had a, a very similar concern that there was concern that we'd be killing firemen and, and paramedics all across the country and indeed across the world. And I certainly have never heard or seen anything like that. I haven't found any record. And it's certainly not a, a kind of a, con, a concern on, on the research or the technology development front. And I think a, a big part of that, as we described before, is the fact that in order to actually fire an airbag, there has to be extremely specific parameters from the module that is controlling it. Um, so it's not the kind of thing where you can just whack the front of a bumper with a hammer and the airbags will deploy. That said, I have also been onto YouTube and seen some practical jokes, which I can't endorse, where people have hooked up airbags to underneath <laughs> people's seats and things like that and launched them through the air. <laughs> I don't know how they did that. <laughs> but in terms of you know, real-world risk, I think it's incredibly low. I know, yeah, I would... I would support the the other contact that you mentioned I've, I've never seen anything like that or that would indicate that there's any kind of risk great that's uh, that's really um 
interesting to hear your your experience on it as well and and often it isn't really a problem for us because the the fire service are there pretty quickly normally these guys are first on scene and doing the first uh, steps of, of aid for these casualties these days so um yeah. often they do make the vehicle very safe but it's it's just something i wanted to touch on and clearly someone else uh, asked the question because it's it's something that we've we've all been taught and, and been made aware of but it's it's valuable to hear uh, hear your comments we we have kind of touched on this question a little bit already with regards to particular injury patterns and and obviously we we've uh, expanded on that quite a bit but one questioner has asked about hgvs now mm. i appreciate that's a a big um you know a big topic in itself but are there any particular things that we need to think about when managing uh, or, or coming across patients that might have been driving an HGV, uh, crashed in an HGV? Is there is there any areas particularly that they may be predisposed to being injured or may have fewer safety features on? Yeah, another another great question. So to, to put it into context that, you know, we've talked a lot about car car safety and there's a number of reasons for that. The, primarily because that's probably or arguably where the most amount of research and technology development and kind of uh, you know, all of the work that's gone in over the past number of decades has primarily been on cars. And that's because car occupants are the most frequent road users. And because of that, they're also the largest proportion of casualties on the road as well. There's also the practical considerations, which we kind of touched on before, when we start thinking about energies um, and momentum in collisions. Now, HGVs have huge energies, um, particularly when they're fully laden, up to 44 tons on the road. You know, you you, you won't take that much Googling or YouTubing to find um, footage of HGVs plowing through the back of a stationary line of traffic. And, you know, they'll go 10, 10 cars deep before they really start slowing down. So in terms of their, the risk to HGV drivers in a, in a specific collision, because they have so much energy, they tend not to be subject to the same kinds of issues as we are with in passenger cars, where you know a car versus a car is, is a fairly equal thing, and you're most likely, uh, in terms of energy, it's a fairly equal you know, event, and you're most likely to come across another car because there's, there's more of them. However, that's not to say that HGV drivers aren't important and it's not that there aren't, they don't get injured. So there's definitely fewer safety systems and the restraint systems tend to be quite different. So obviously HGVs have no real crumple zone. Any kind of external safety feature or crash safety feature tends to be for the benefit of the cars that they'll be impacting or the pedestrians or cyclists as they're turning and things like that, side guards to stop them going under the wheels. So they have no real crumple zones or anything like that. And also their restraint systems, their seat belts are integral to their seats. So the seatbelt anchorage points are on the seats themselves. So in the event that you do get a really high deceleration force on an HGV, say it impacts another HGV or a trailer or a tree or something like that, it's always important to look at how the seat has behaved because that's really the only thing kind of anchoring and controlling the injury experience for, for the HGV driver. Point. I, I know there's been cases I haven't been like you say I haven't been to many HGV uh, RTCs but I, I've heard I know I've heard from colleagues that in really high speed uh, cases the seats can actually begin to detach from the yeah. chassis chassis uh, and and obviously 
you you said the the only limited safety feature then is uh, is starting to be impacted quite significantly. Yeah, I mean, yes, absolutely. The, um, it's worth saying it's not it's not necessarily the only, but it's definitely the, yeah. the main and the big difference between that and cars. Yeah. Again, you you've kind of touched on this, but I'll I'll just ask it to uh, to sort of complete that round circle. Um, I know you've already said about the, the the sides of the doors being particularly sensitive in in vehicles because there's relatively little space that you can you can work with. But are there any other particularly sensitive or poorly protected areas of cars where if we see significant damage, we might be thinking, okay, this is a, a badly injured patient. Yeah, yeah, we've talked a lot about frontal impacts because, again, the, part of the reason why there's so much work on frontal impacts is because that's the most likely area that you're going to impact because cars tend to travel forwards. Not always, particularly if you have an old BMW with, with no safety systems on it. Um, sometimes that goes sideways. So, yeah, the it, it kind of comes back to those same principles that we talked about before. There's not necessarily specific areas but there's areas where we're more likely to see those hallmarks that we're looking out for. So things like intrusion and yeah, this, the side, in, you know, the doors and side impacts and things like that are often we're going to get intrusion into that that passenger cell much sooner with a side impact than than with a frontal impact. So there's not necessarily specific areas to look for. It comes back more about you know, put, putting yourself in that injury experience and that yeah, the, the passenger centric view of it. Excellent. Rollovers. So rollover RTCs are yeah. still featured quite heavily in most of the guidelines as, you know, a red flag, a high mechanism. In this questioner's experience, and I have to say in my experience, I've been to a number of, of patients who've had uh, quote unquote rollover RTCs where the car has uh, ended up on its roof and either stayed there or has ended back on, 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 the, on the tires. I have found and they've found that these patients sometimes aren't that injured and i've certainly been to more patients in a rollover rtc that have been fine than have been particularly unwell uh, including one recently where they they actually rolled down you know 20 or 30 meters down a very steep hill um, covered in trees and and actually the patient other than being a little bit roughed up physically was was quite well so Mm. In your experience and, and professional opinion, are, are rollover RTCs still the high mechanism that they they once were? Yeah, so that's a that's a really interesting question. So I, I'm not sure I can answer the kind of the the overall severity or the overall kind of risk of of rollovers. But what I can what I can tell you is that rollovers are incredibly dynamic events. When when particularly when you compare them to things like a single head-on or a single frontal impact or a single side impact. As a result of that, there is no regulation testing for rollover impacts in, in Europe. Um, so there's no rollover test at all. There, are, there is one in America, and I believe in Canada as well, partly because they, they are just incredibly difficult things to, to kind of design a car for. If you think of, you know, you can, you can replicate head-ons. You know, if you take a, a 50 mile an hour head-on and do 10 of them, each of them are going to look more or less the same. But if you do you know, a different rollover, a 50 mile an hour rollover, each one might be a completely unique sequence of, of dynamic events. So there's, there's that aspect of it too, that the, the variance in rollovers can be, can be really massive. And there's all kinds of things that will influence that, you know, the, the size of the vehicle, the, the environment it's at, the, the energy that it has, the speed that it's traveling, that kind of thing. It's, uh, so this is an anecdotal observation from doing the RAIDS work. So I don't actually have any empirical data to back this up. But I feel... 
that modern car design. We're getting a much bigger cars, but actually I think that the the underlying chassis of the vehicle isn't actually expanding quite as rapidly as the external body. So we've seen a number of cases where you have things like your kind of uh, Volkswagen T-Roc, these kind of uh, crossover hatchback things. It's essentially a Volkswagen Golf or Volkswagen Polo, but it's, you know, got, um, it's a semi four by four kind of thing, SUV. And when you have a really kind of, it can be quite a low speed collision, but a low overlap impact where you get you know, a, a bit of overlap kind of into the wheel arch, into the back of usually a parked car or something like that. We're seeing those vehicles pop over and, and roll over and do a fairly low speed, gentle rollover. But we're seeing lots of rollovers from fairly minor kind of rear end shunts and things like that, which I wonder is if that's to do with, first of all, the weight of the vehicles, the height of the vehicles, but also the fact that there's nothing really stiff in front of the wheel. So you just crush all this plastic back, then you engage the wheel. And because it's high up, you just pop the wheel up onto its side and, and over it goes. But again, we kind of come back to the when, when we're talking about the difference between a fatal rollover and, and somebody gets up and walks away, the big thing to look at is the decelerations. So you can have a 100 mile an hour rollover, you spinning down the road, bang, 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 bang. But if you have that 100 mile an hour rollover over 300 meters, you know, it's going to be like incredibly dramatic and hopefully someone's filming it because it'd be wicked. Yeah. Um, but but you you probably you you know you're not you, at no point are you going to have a really high impact that's going to lead to massive deceleration forces. So you know, I'm, I'm assuming that you're not flying through the air and smashing into the ground and things like that. But if you also have a you know you can have a 50 mile an hour rollover, it's where you roll 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 and you hit a tree and that tree is in, the the impact is in the roof where the roof is not designed to have a tree impact at all. And all of a sudden you've got massive intrusion, huge you know, force transfer, all that kind of thing. So again, it comes back to thinking about the the what what's the deceleration experienced by that vehicle, and then how has that been transferred to the people inside? The big thing with rollovers, this that's a very it's not unique, but it's a very specific thing to to rollovers is the risk of ejection. So what we see with rollovers, particularly if someone's not wearing a seatbelt, and the chance of of ejection, by which I mean the, the person exits, usually through a window or a smash window or some kind of aperture that's opened up in the vehicle. The risk of ejection is much, much higher with rollover events than any, any other kind of collision. And the, the, your risk of fatality with a roller, with an ejection is, is massive. It goes straight through the roof. Again, there's always those anecdotal stories of somebody got thrown clear of, of the collision, though I've never actually seen one. Most ejections I've seen have ended up in truly horrific fatalities. Um, so again, you know, that, that's probably going to be pretty obvious to you guys. If you're seeing an ejection and they're, they're smashed to pieces, then then it's going to be pretty obvious. But yeah, think think again about the decelerations that have experienced that have been experienced by the vehicle and the people. Brilliant. That's uh, that's a really valuable answer. Thank you. And again, the the reason that most people will be familiar with them is is in our guidelines. And and sure. obviously, guidelines have to be relatively rigid. But uh, like you say, it, it it's coming back to thinking about what that patient's experienced, like the the forces that have been involved, and just because. The vehicle has rolled like you say it, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's been a massive energy transference over a short period of time yeah absolutely adam the, the last question i've got for you really is around the the future of sort of electric cars self-driving cars one question that's been posed and that does come up from time to time is is there a is there a risk from the batteries in these electric vehicles uh, and the second part of that question is where's the future of 
vehicle safety heading and is there anything to to keep our eyes out for uh, in the future that that's going to be a the next sort of big big crash prevention or, or injury prevention in in this field another great question so to to start with the the electric powertrains so this is a really interesting area so obviously we've we've all seen the the influx of hybrid electric powertrains most governments around, well, most uh, kind of European governments are, are looking to set a target to to switch all new vehicles sold to to fully electric or hybrid electric powertrains. So these things are already increasing their their kind of market share and, and share of vehicles on on the road. So they pose a really interesting challenge. So in the first kind of stages, the first generations of, of of electric vehicles in the kind of modern era, battery design and things like that was was really kind of finding its way, finding its footing in, in how it was behaving during crashes. Um, and there's a, there's a famous incident that happened in America at one of their testing centers, where I believe it was a Chevy Volt, which was their electric vehicle at the time. And they performed a crash test. Um, and I think two or three days later, the, the battery had gone into a heat cycle and the battery detonated and took out three or four other vehicles around it which poses a really interesting challenge for my team, for example, who are potentially looking at vehicles two or three days later. <laughs> Bet that was a bit twitchy for you and your team when you heard that. <laughs> yes, yeah, that was a few years ago now. But we, yeah, electric vehicles is still a challenge. It's probably the biggest part of our risk assessment is <laughs> on electric vehicles. So there is an element of the crashworthiness and how, and, and the fact that you know ele- electric power packs or battery power packs then it's not necessarily like petrol, which is you know it's going to explode then and there. It might be, it might be something that that goes into a heat cycle later on. So there's definite challenges around that. There's also the aspect of electrification. So again, this is probably I'm, I'm probably facilitating the same conversations that were happening 30, 40, 50 years ago with regards to airbags, and then we're going to kill all paramedics and, and fire and fire and rescue guys with with airbags back then. But there, there is a risk of electrification if the high voltage power lines or the battery pack itself is compromised and somehow comes into contact with the chassis. So it is a, what I'm saying is it's a possibility. The risk of it happening is relatively low because they're designed specifically. So they're put pretty much towards the center of the vehicle. All the power lines are usually protected. They're not put in silly places like at the front on a a bumper or something like that, where if you have a a rear end shunt, you're going to suddenly electrify everything. But it is a it is a possibility. All, pretty much all of the vehicles will have fail safes, so they'll have ways in which they can shut themselves down, um, isolate themselves. There's ways in which the, all vehicles can be made safe by a by a human operator. What's challenging at the moment is that between different manufacturers, there's no standard way of doing it. So if you want, if you've got a Tesla, for example, the way that you make that vehicle safe and pull out, basically, they've got kind of a, a circuit breaker is completely different to how you do a Chevy Volt or electric Porsches, things like that. So there's a lack of kind of uh, standardization at the moment. So it's it's definitely still a developing, emerging area. So I guess I would say, watch this space. It's something I find people are kind of aware of. So most fire and rescue or, or ambulance services that we speak to are aware that there is a risk, but don't necessarily have a coordinated approach to what they should do about it. And so, and, and indeed, I put myself in that category as well in my team, and that we, we have a really challenging spot where we've got a potentially a vehicle that was recovered two or three days after a collision um, that we need to investigate. 
do we go ahead and make the vehicle safe? What happens if we've incorrectly made it safe and then one of the yard workers electrocutes themselves? So yeah, it's a really challenging spot at the moment. At the moment, our instruction to our team is you don't touch the vehicle if, if, it's, if it's been compromised. So that's not to say that that's an, an appropriate you know, measure to take. It's just that's what, what we do at this point. And around the the sort of the future of, of of safety in this group of vehicles, what what uh, is there anything that we should be looking out for, or or that we might potentially be having conversations about uh, in a few years' time? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you mentioned the self driving cars. So, the the roads to autonomy is definitely we're definitely on on our way. There's been a huge amount of hype about full autonomy and you know getting into cars without steering wheels and things like that. I think the although there are examples of that, in fact, here I was involved with um, something called the Gateway Project. So there's there's autonomous pods driving around Greenwich, for example, but very much with you know with someone with a big red button walking behind it, so that if it goes off into the river or something like that, they can stop it. So we're we're quite a way away from full autonomy in you know, the, the sense of something out of minority report or something like that. But there are fairly advanced systems coming now. So probably the biggest development in active safety is the introduction of something called the general safety regulation, which is, is just coming into effect now, which is the first regulation and standardization of, of advanced driver assistance systems. So these are your things like your autonomous emergency braking, lane keep assist, those kinds of things. So those things can already be found on, on lots of vehicles but it's kind of paving the way to kind of open up that development and the mandating the fitment of those, those technologies on vehicles. So that's the kind of the active side. So that's talking more about that primary safety system. But at TRL and in, in the research that we do, it, it, it should be worth noting that all of that development in primary safety and active safety is absolutely brilliant and it will save, it will save thousands of lives but it's really important not to lose focus on the secondary safety and the crashworthiness and how we continue to protect people during the collisions. Again, understanding how to work with automotive manufacturers is very difficult for them to do something like redesign a windscreen or change, you know, redesign you know, the, the crash structures that we talked about. It's much easier to fit a thousand pound radar sensor and update it with some software and, and get it to break for pedestrians when it sees it. So there's a huge you know, balance to be played. One thing, one interesting development will be the introduction of adaptive restraint systems and more intelligent restraint systems. So you've seen this kind of evolution from going from just a plain seatbelt to a seatbelt with an airbag to multi-stage airbags to intelligent seatbelts that can choose how much they, you know, how much they choose to pre-tension before a collision, load limiting, that kind of thing. But the stuff that we talked about, about adapting how it decides to restrain the occupant based on the the size and weight of the occupant is, is something that will, will develop. But also the other aspects of a restraint system. So it's, we've talked a lot about airbags and seatbelts, but there are other aspects too. So the seat itself, for example, in, in kind of high-end modern cars now will move you around depending on the kind of collision that you're going to have. So this can be as simple as in the moments of a rear-end collision, bringing the head restraint forward so it just touches the back of your head so that you don't get you, it mitigates your whiplash risk. But also some really clever stuff like moving, actually moving the angle of the seat so that it brings you more inboard in the event of a side impact so that you have more of that survival wow. space and canting people over so that you're leaning in towards the center of the vehicle, things like that. Um, so, yeah, look for, for those kinds of things, too. 
wow, it's amazing, isn't it? Those all those marginal gains that they're able to make with with technology now that are, are making that uh, all the difference. Yeah, absolutely. One more question is: uh, so you're you're working in Thames Valley and Hampshire area is where the Raids project is is ongoing. Currently, um, yeah. is 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 there is that going to expand anywhere else, or or are you focusing on on that area? Yeah, great question. Uh, the project. Great question. So yeah, currently we're in Thames Valley and Hampshire, but we're always looking to expand our network and look at data collection in other areas. So yeah, very much open to conversations and yeah, any any ideas and thoughts on, on how we can work together with a wider network across the UK. And for any of your listeners in Thames Valley and Hampshire, if you see us at a collision scene, we're the ones in the high visibility orange Volvo dressed in full orange the team love hearing the "Have you been Tango?" joke, so start with that. <laughs> Excellent. I uh, yeah, I'm sure you're going to hear an awful lot more of that now. Great. I'm going to kick <laughs> in for that. <laughs> but brilliant, and I and I'm sure if uh, if if any of our listeners that are out that way uh, do see you, hopefully they uh, they can come up and have a little word. Uh, and a chat with with you guys and and learn a little bit more perhaps even about that scene that they're that they're seeing and yeah, some absolutely. of this real world applications and learning in, in into process yeah definitely great just before we close down then is there was there anything else that uh, that you you wanted to say or squeeze in that's come to mind no only just to say you know thanks very much and would like to say i'm keen to work more with the likes of yourselves and paramedics and putting yeah, just expanding our network a little bit. So yeah, oh, other than that, no, no absolutely. And thank, thank you so much for, for giving your time this evening. We we really appreciate it. And uh, like I was saying to you before, I'm not aware of of uh, any of this kind of media on this topic that's that's gone out there. So uh, I think it's going to generate some really useful uh, and interesting discussion. And and like you say, I, I wasn't aware of, uh, prior to seeing you at Trauma Care, I wasn't aware of the work that, that uh, TRL were doing and, and the evidence that was being gathered in this area. So um, any any further joint working that, that, that can be done between, you know, the Fire and Rescue Service, us and, and the research you're doing there would, um, it, you know, is, is only going to go forward, isn't it, to improving our understanding and, uh, and and improving the experience of that that person at the center of this collision is there uh, the the raids data that you're gathering is that published anywhere i i know i've seen something on your website uh with with regards to to raids but is it is it published yearly or or anything like that that, that people might be able to go and look up and, and keep an eye on the work that you're you're doing yeah, so the, the data itself is uh, captured into a database. Um, so obviously we, we capture fairly sensitive information. So there are restrictions on the application process, but it is an, a free to use database. So it is provided for and funded by the Department for Transport. So it is for the benefit of, of the UK and, and, and Europe. So it is available to access. It's free to access. So I'd highly encourage anybody doing research in this area to go go and make an application to apply for the data or indeed come and contact me. I'm very happy to speak about ways in which um, we can support any any other research ongoing. And yes, you're right. We do kind of routine analysis and publish yearly reports on, on our findings. But also on a side to that, the RAIDS program supports research in myriad other projects. So the, the things that I've just mentioned about the general safety regulation, the pedestrian safety regulation, all of those things, the evidence base for actually implementing those all relies on things like RAIDS. There are other studies and there's a German counterpart called GIDAS, which which is very much the same. But yeah, the UK invests heavily in, in 
understanding collisions in as much detail as possible to really, you know, they, the UK government recognizes how much it, it puts us ahead. And yeah, so the more I can encourage access of raids and, and um, research from that, uh, the better. Well, I, I know myself and uh, a number of my colleagues are uh, starting to think about master's projects and, and things Excellent. like that. So uh, you never know, you might get a little phone call from uh, from me or, or one of my colleagues yeah, uh, please do. with some ideas. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> a pleasure. Perfect. Okay. Well, Adam, thanks so much for speaking to us again this evening. And uh, I will I'll let you get back to uh, what little of your evening is left. <laughs> no, absolute pleasure. Thank you very much, Josh, for the invite. And our thanks again to Adam for a really interesting set of interviews. So, Alex, there's an absolute ton of information there. What are some things that you've taken away? Yeah, I think for the for quite a long time, we've had discussions on uh, the collision of two vehicles of a similar mass and how um, the closing speed, as you said, is not necessarily useful. It's useful to describe what's happened in terms of the approach of the two vehicles, but actually it doesn't really have any bearing on the physical forces that are actually uh, affecting the occupants of the vehicle. And that's where I really like the term that Adam has used, injury experience, because what the vehicles are going through in terms of the forces that the vehicles are experiencing if you listen to the first part of the podcast, you, you'll have heard all about the safety features that, especially on modern vehicles, they have and the, the minute adjustments that they make to the impact time and the transmission of force from the collision into the person. So the experience of the occupant is an entirely different thing to the experience of the vehicle. And that's that's one of the things that I think is a really important takeaway uh, in terms of collision speed and, and this kind of pretty much false idea of closing speed in terms of um, mechanism of injury. Yeah, I completely agree. And that basically touches on the biggest learning point that I've taken away from this set of interviews uh, of injury experience and that it is far more valuable for everyone involved to for us to describe what we've seen, to describe the feedback that we've got from the vehicle and to, to describe what the patient has gone through to end up in that injured state. Yeah, some, uh, some really useful stuff there. So uh, I think we are going to leave it there unless you've got anything else to uh, to add in there, Josh. No, not really. I'd just be repeating what Adam's already said and um, put quite concisely. Just thanks again to Adam for giving his time up. Uh, that's been really useful and beneficial for me and hopefully there has been some good CPD for those that are listening. Yeah, I hope so. And uh, as always, there's going to be an article with some further explanations, further links, and uh, perhaps some uh, details on the work that Adam and the uh, Transport Research Laboratory have been doing. Um, that's going to be available on our website, www.generalbroadcast.org.uk. And as always, if you've got any comments or feedback, you can always drop us an email at generalbroadcastpodcast at outlook.com. Well, that's all for this week. Thanks for listening. Thanks, guys. See you next time.